Today on Water Flying, we are joined by legendary seaplane pilot, Terry Hayes. You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, as we wind 2021 down, I have been given a holiday gift in the fact that we're going to be joined by Terry Hayes, who is literally a legendary seaplane pilot, seaplane instructor, aviation advocate, seaplane or SPA volunteer, seaplane foundation scholarship committee chairwoman, an active donor, retired DPE, and expert mountain pilot. Terry, you and I have known each other a long time. We've been flying together. It's a remarkable 20 years now. And I just can't say enough, you are always regarded in my mind as being one of my best resources for seaplane skills and knowledge in the Western United States and mountain flying knowledge. Thank you so much for joining me today on Water Flying. Wow, Steve, that's quite an introduction. (laughs) I mean it. (laughs) You make me sound very, very good. Hey, I'm um, really happy to be here. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, I look forward to talking to you about all this having a little chat as we sit down uh, for water flying so um, we're going to talk a lot about uh, the western united states california in particular a little bit about montana probably talk about some of the drought issues um, and how that's affected the seaplane community and also maybe uh, some of the unique glassy water operation techniques that are used in areas like California where you may have larger trees and terrain and, and things that we don't have here as much in Florida to say the least. So um, for the, our listeners that may not be as familiar with you as I am, can you take us a moment to introduce uh, yourself to the audience and tell them a little bit about your journey and, and what some of its highlights have been? Sure. I'll be happy to. I um, started flying float planes back in 1996 um, it was the first time I flew a float plane. It was a little little uh, quicksilver on floats, and it was just a blast. So I came back. I was on vacation, so I came back to California, went down to Sausalito and got my seaplane rating, and then decided it was something I wanted to do um, for a living. So I changed careers and started uh, looking building float plane time. I came up to Calaveras in 1996. Eight and got my multi-engine C because I wanted to try to go up to Alaska and work. Then a couple months later, I found out the business was for sale. So I bought NorCal Aviation in 1998, and I ran the single-engine portion until 2008 and sold that and just ran the multi-engine portion of that until 2011. And then in 2011 was when we um, had the horrible accident with my son, and he was killed in a in an aviation accident over in the Middle East. So I stopped flying for about three years. I really missed the float plane part. Um, I came back uh, 
to Montana, or I went to Montana with a good friend of mine who was also a seaplane mentor. When he got sick, he needed some help, and I did miss the float plane flying. So I started working for him up in Montana um, and just absolutely loved it. Came back to (laughs) California, and now I work for both the operators of the school that I used to have and then also up in Montana. And um, float plane flying has just been a big part of my life. I love the fact that you can be out in nature. And um, you've been out to our pond here in California where we operate, and it's just fabulous. And then you've also been to our operation up in Montana. Lucky me. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, lucky me and lucky you because you get to do it all the time out there. That's right. That's right. And it's just been, um, it's been a, a wonderful journey. I did like um, doing the check rides and so forth for a long time, but I've kind of simplified my life a little bit. And now I just spend a lot of time doing seaplane safety and teaching and doing tours. Yeah. Um, so we literally met, uh, I moved out to Northern California in 99, and we probably met very closely thereafter. Uh, when I came to be a customer and, and fly with you at NorCal, and we were flying the the one fifty one fifty at that point. Yeah. Yep. And we've had a Super Cub, a one fifty, a one seventy two. Yeah. And I do have to say, the Super Cub's my favorite. Yes, we share a passion for the Super Cub. So, <laughs> so uh, that's awesome. And, and again, you really. Uh, built your mountain flying skills again you're kind of uniquely situated with the pond um, that the school operates off of and you've got some great water and some great canyon flying and and other opportunities right literally right in the backyard there Um, what's it like again for listeners that haven't flown in California because it's I don't think people associate California with seaplanes as much as maybe some other states it amazes me how few seaplanes we have out here compared to um, other states and the fact that uh, we have so many great places to fly around here. Our basic training in, in um, Northern California is in the Sierra foothills, and we have three big reservoirs we use locally, and then we do a lot of mountain training to Tahoe and the smaller lakes in between the foothills and Tahoe. So we have some wonderful places to fly like we were um, discussing earlier we're going to be talking a little bit about the drought i think we should try to schedule a monthly meeting because since we had talked about doing the drought we've had nothing but rain which is fabulous (laughs) Um, the last week we've just had a, a great storm come through back in october we had a really good storm come through so hopefully if we can keep this up through the winter and then have another good year next year maybe we'll get over this drought but right now we're we're in dire straits with water yeah well hey i like that i mean any opportunity or excuse to talk to you is a good one so <laughs> if if i can be the the rain god and and try to help the situation there then i'm all for it so you talked about you know kind of the lack of a presence of a, a larger seaplane community in california and i think that's a really relevant discussion because California is literally number three in the United States for the number of seaplane pilots that are residents of any state in the country. That's number three only behind number one being Florida and number two 
being Alaska with over 3,000 pilots in each of those states and about 2,600 seaplane pilots in California. And despite that number three ranking, both you and I have witnessed a, a much smaller seaplane community than maybe, say, another state like Washington that's at number four or Minnesota that, that fl- falls at number six. Yeah, I think one of our problems is that a lot of the lakes that we use around here are reservoirs. And so there's no, there's not too many lakes that are um, big community lakes that are available for float planes for people on straight floats. And then as we both know, insurance is just crazy uh, for float planes anyway. But if you get somebody who uh, gets a rating, gets some hours and then buys an AnFib, most of them, you know, the insurance is just unreasonable so we don't have a lot of places people can tie float planes up to Um, Mm -hmm. we have a lot of places you can fly so you pretty much need to be on amphibs if you're in california unless you have a private strip like where we are based with the float plane or somebody else has a ranch pond that you can work some sort of contract with Um, some of the things i've seen people do which i think is great is they've built these like um, ski water ski uh, strips, yeah. and then they'll put a float plane in there, and that's pretty reasonable if if um, you own the property and and you can get somebody to dig those out for you. That that works pretty well. Fraser Lake over near the the bay there near San Francisco has a water strip right beside their grass strip. Yeah. Um, but again, you'd have to be able to pull your plane out of the water then, and so forth. So it makes it a little bit harder for people in California to fly floats compared to like Washington state has a lot of lakes that you can tie up to Uh, Montana does. um, The only problem with Montana is they all freeze in the winter, but yeah. uh, yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons we don't have quite as many pilots that fly float planes in California or owners. uh, Owner operators. Yeah. Frazier, uh, Frazier was the home of Walter Windis with his uh, Cessna 172 and on straight floats. And he was former uh, chairman of the board of the Seaplane Pilots Association. And that's where he would fly out of. Yep. Yep. He's, he's been a, a great resource out here for us in California. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's all good. We would like to see this community grow. I enjoyed, you know, not only with you, uh, but Ray and, and everyone else, uh, Paul Rivas, I mean, just a wonderful community out there that, you know, we were flying everything from Cessna 185s, the Super Cubs, the 150, um, Grumman Albatrosses. I mean, we had a very vibrant community uh, flying in California. It was just a lot smaller. Um, and, and again, just amazing destinations, but the destinations didn't have necessarily the support of a hotel or a restaurant or marina um, where you could leave the airplane once you arrived at the destination. Exactly. We used to have flying picnics once a month where we'd meet at one of the lakes, and that worked well for years. Um, we need to get that going again because then it brings people out more and and it gets the community a little bit stronger. Yeah. So I know we were... I go to Montana in the summer from May to October, and um, there's a lot of float flying up there, and it's just a great, great area to fly in, too. One of the problems in California is that the lakes do get pretty busy with boats, and since we don't have a big seaplane community around here, um, the boaters aren't quite as used to working with 
float planes as, as some of the other areas where it's a common thing to see them come in. Yeah, and that goes that holds true for law enforcement and the and the waterway managers as well. Because I know we had one instance uh, that's occurred in my recent memory where we literally had an airplane operating on a lake, and the the agency that was controlling the lake literally was calling here, thinking that the individual was spreading powder in the lake and what it was was the mist coming off of the floats the prop spray and, and the float spray <laughs> right so uh people just don't know yeah and thankfully we were able to uh engage in that and and, and get involved and and work it out with everyone but we wanted to talk about these water levels because there is a, a tremendous amount of amazing water in california um, but this this drought is affecting everything, including seaplane operations and the way we operate. Has it been a, a you know a big factor in limiting operations, or has it been something that you've been able to adapt to? It doesn't limit the operations; it just changes it. We still have some a lot of places to land, a lot of areas to work with. It actually makes a better training environment because you can have a student for a weekend and you can be telling them that, you know, the environment changes every time you land, but they don't, you know, see it quite as often when uh, you have a good water flow and, and everything's nice and deep. We can be teaching somebody on a Friday and go back on Sunday and there'll be another island that has appeared. Oh, wow. <laughs> so <laughs> those those kinds of things are wonderful for teaching does make it more challenging because you have less water to work with, less area to land, and then you still have the same amount of fishermen out there and the boaters that you have to be conscious of. It changes our glassy water because you can be using an island as your last visual reference, and then there'll be a pine tree about, you know, 300 feet away from that that's sticking out of the water. When they filled these reservoirs, they didn't cut down a lot of the trees. So as the levels go down, it starts looking like you've got these little parks in certain places. That, <laughs> um, you know, is it's, it's interesting. It makes it more challenging. It makes it fun. It does make it a little bit harder for students because a confined area landing is one thing. And then you turn it into a confined area glassy water landing. And it makes it harder for them as a as a new student coming to learn float planes. But we find it very fun, challenging, and we just have to be more aware of the fact that you could, you know, have a lot more obstacles out there that you have to truly do your reconning before you come in and land. Yeah, well, I think that per, that dynamic environment actually is a great training opportunity, and it's just really dramatic. I mean. You know, to think that you're flying on water and you just don't get a shallow spot or maybe a sandbar that that pokes its head through the top of the water, you're actually getting islands appear in, in as little as three days. I mean, that's just a phenomenal thought process. I mean, to think that that happens and what a great demonstration to the student in that process also about how attuned they have to be to the to the water and the changing uh, water, you know, structures or the, you know, the way the water is, is oriented. Yes, it, it is. It's great. We, we like it. And, you know, we, we do love to see more water just because of the whole drought, but it has not slowed us down for flying. In fact, it's made it, you know, a little bit more challenging and more fun. Yeah. 
So one of the big differences between Florida and somewhere like California or Montana, where you have a really some, quite honestly, some pretty steep terrain uh, potentials, especially when you have a full brim uh, reservoir, and the trees are also a lot taller in California than they are here in Florida. And you also have density altitude issues, depending on where you're operating, uh, if you're up in the mountains. So glassy water operations is a is a huge topic. And I think there's a, a huge advantage for students being exposed to that environment because it's a very practical, real world experience. It really is. And it's um, it makes it more challenging when when you have all the obstacles that are out there because you can use an island, but now the island has these old pine trees that, you know, have been under the water forever, but they're still there and they're tall. So you you just have to recreate different ways to have your last visual reference. And then you go around point because if you don't land before your go around point, you, you know, you could be coming up on islands or trees. So it's critical to, really recon your area much further than you normally would for a glassy because you have to get, uh, you come in pretty confined and then you have to get stabilized pretty quickly. So what we end up doing a lot of is just going up to altitude and teaching that slow flight and looking at that site picture so they can get it set up as they come over their last visual a little quicker than a nice long stabilized approach, which makes it easier for a glassy water if you can have that nice long final and get all all situated it's it's a lot easier than having to do a confined area glassy water yeah and as we know if you're not doing a glassy water you can generally land in a lot shorter area than you can take off in so with that combined with the fact that you are doing a glassy water and you may need to abort the attempt um, or if you're in a takeoff profile and you're taking off with those trees and that terrain and the density altitude, um, you you really kind of have to have your stuff together there. You really have to be thinking about that stuff and, and have a good understanding and, and not underestimate the performance of the aircraft that's needed and do you have enough space to, to do it in. Exactly, yeah. And I tell you, I don't know why, but the water up in Montana, when when you have glassy water in Montana, it is a lot glassier. (laughs) Some of those some of those little lakes up there that you go into have the huge trees on each end and are all around. So you have to come in and and you get pretty good at your confined area glassy waters. Especially up there where I know I think you've been up to Stillwater where, where Bill Montgomery's got. Yeah, we have been up there. Yeah. Our, our uh, seaplane base there. That's pretty cool. But they always have glassy water. Yeah. And that's in a fairly narrow uh, body of water with, with terrain and trees all the way around it. Yeah. Uh, rising exactly. terrain. <laughs> Exactly. So, um, and, you know, one of the things that was different there in Montana also that you see here in the Bahamas, but generally not with glassy water, was some of the the lakes in Montana were just literally crystal clear. So if you have glassy water and this crystal clear water where you can see right to the bottom, uh, that's an interesting scenario. Exactly. Yeah. Especially when it's confined on top of it. (laughs) Yeah. So you're just throwing everything in there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, 
it doesn't sound like you've lost a lot of water. It's made training more interesting and more challenging, which isn't a bad thing. Um, is there any difference between Southern California and Northern California as far as, you know, how the drought has affected? It looks like it's literally affected all the way up to Ruth, which is, you know, almost up at the Oregon border. And uh, again, a beautiful lake to fly seaplanes in. Exactly. I don't think it's made any difference between northern and southern. I think everybody's in a drought right now in California. And that's even hard to say as we're watching it pour down rain outside right now. We have had two very good storms this year, but it's going to take a lot more than that to fill up our reservoirs. They're the lowest I've ever seen them in the 25 years I've been up here. Yeah, we were talking. It looked like there was some data suggesting that they're at the lowest level on record period, if not at least going back more than a hundred years. Yeah. So that's really something. Yeah, it is. Um, and of course you and I both have a lot of experience flying, uh, out at Lake Mead and, and the changes we've seen there over the last 20 years from where they were full brim, literally releasing water out of the dam, uh, because they were at full brim, uh, to where it is today, which is, uh, just scary. <laughs> yeah, I have not seen the reservoirs full here since 2010, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 pretty scary. And then, you know, you top that off with all the fires we get in the summertime. Yeah, you've got kind of a vicious cycle between the drought, the fires, and uh, the low water levels. And we were talking earlier a little bit about the smoke and how that may affect your operations and also how that affects glassy water operations because you get a really soft light in smoky conditions and that can again aggravate the glassy water operations yeah exactly yeah we do we do get some smoky conditions out here um usually if it uh Usually if the start, smoke starts coming in, it will get where it's so bad you can't even fly. You have to shut down operations. Yeah, I think we saw that in Montana at, at some point as well uh, in yeah. the, recently. So, um, yeah, we I, I hope we find some more rain in our future for the dry west uh, because uh, we really need it. Um, we need to get these waterways back healthy. I know the, the rivers that we were on up in northern California were way below the flow that they should have, and that affects the salmon fisheries and, and everything else. So, um, it, does. Let's, it also affects when we're out flying. I've had several TFRs pop up where you have to work around those when you're out on the lake. So you check your weather and you check your, you know, uh, notams and TFRs before you go out. But while you're out flying, things pop up. So you're constantly having to look at that stuff where in the past you didn't have to check it quite as often. Yeah, well, and literally SPA again, we've gotten phone calls here uh, to assist members that have operated in those TFRs and those TFRs have been instigated uh, due to the forest fire activity mm-hmm. and the, and the fighting of the fires. So I don't, I don't want to miss an opportunity. I want to get on to some more positive notes and there, there's a couple of different ones, but let's talk about the impact that we've been able to create out of, out of any other way to say it, a, a tragedy uh, with the loss of your son. And, 
one of the very first things I did coming on as executive director of the, uh, the Seaplane Pilots Association was create the Tyler Orzo Chuck Times Memorial Scholarship with you and Andrea in their and Tyler and, and Chuck's memory, who were both very close to me as well. And I think we've been able to really turn a, a, a tragedy into a really positive note with the scholarships that we've been able to provide. We're continuing to provide and a program that's continuing to evolve to do even more through the scholarships. Would you like to address that at all? Or? Well, I've enjoyed working with these young, young students and these young people. And I've found that um, a lot of them I've kept in touch with since they've done their seaplane ratings through the scholarship and they've turned into good friends. And it just is nice to see uh, the younger generation that we have coming up flying. I'm impressed with a lot of these young kids, how how dedicated they are and just how thoughtful they are. And uh, it's been a good thing. It's been a healing thing for me to be able to work with these kids because I know how much Tyler loved float plane flying. Um, I enjoy uh, working with the youth probably the most there's there's so many opportunities out there for them right now but it's hard i mean it's really hard for these kids to be able to build float plane time because it's just so expensive I mean, it's gotten it's it's very expensive to fly anything nowadays and um that's a combination of just the increase of everything and and insurance so we have to help these kids build float plane time and it's nice to see people that uh, some of the schools that have donated and that they're helping keep this scholarship going as you know um, building more float plane flight pilots we've had quite a few of these kids that have gone through that are now flight instructing and doing seaplane training and it's just a really positive thing to see and uh, i've enjoyed working with them yeah, I I was so devastated, number one, at the loss in the first place, but number two, when we lost you from the community for the years that we did. And I was so proud at you for making the decision to come back and, and kind of crossing that, that very painful threshold. And we've now created about three dozen pilots out of the, the scholarship program. Um, you know, when I think of the awardees that have received the the scholarship, like Brooke Roman, who went on to become a seaplane instructor, uh, you know, with Don Lee, where she did her training and literally created another 200 new seaplane pilots as a result of being an instructor. And it really changed the entire trajectory um, of her flying career. And she's literally now trained some of our other scholarship recipients. It, 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 exactly, and that's that's one of those really rewarding stories. I know, I know of four of the the young people that I have worked with that are now doing seaplane things for a living. That's that's the whole seaplane rating, like for me, changed their life, and um, it's it's really fun to keep track of them and see where they are, what they're doing. I think one of the problems that the seaplane community is going to have is that we're going to, um, I know it's, it's already affecting Alaska where they can't find qualified pilots anymore to 
fly up there because they don't have the experience. They don't have the hours. We're getting a lot of these um, older seaplane pilots up there that are, are so good at what they do and they're and they've been doing it for so long but a lot of them aren't able to get insured anymore because of their age which is very unfortunate mm-hmm. and so you're losing pilots faster than you're creating pilots and it's turning into a problem for a lot of the lodges up there i know one lodge that has uh started training their own pilots they they've got their dock hands they're paying for the ratings they're getting the ratings done because they've been working for them for a long time they know the area and so they think that will be a better way to create long-term seaplane pilots for their lodges um but it is it is a challenge yeah so for the people that may not be aware of this that are listening we are really feeling uh experiencing a crisis uh, currently with the seaplane pilot population. In the last 20 years, we've literally lost 30% of the seaplane pilot population, uh, which is, is you know, just a really bad trend. And if we look at what we've lost just in the last couple of years, it, it's like 18% in the last four or five years that we've lost. So we really have to reverse this trend for the health of the community it actually the the more people that participate in this activity, the lower the cost of the the activity becomes for insurance purposes and for manufacturing purposes. If they sell more floats, they can afford to sell them for less money, and so it's really in everyone's best interest to maintain a good, solid, healthy population of seaplane pilots. We're never going to be the majority of pilots. We're always going to be just a couple of percent of the aggregate number of pilots. But we can't let this number erode anymore. And one thing that we've done with this scholarship program was done our little part to to help that issue. Exactly. And then we've had some other people bring in scholarships. The um, Lyft, Ladies in Flight Training, they're doing some seaplane scholarships, which has been wonderful. I think they did two this year and then they're planning on doing more the year coming up. So it's, it's really nice to see people who get inspired by float planes, try to pay it forward. And that's what we all have to do to be able to help these people build float plane time. Yeah, I agree. And so if you are interested in Becoming part of the scholarship program, uh, we're going to tell you, number one, how to apply, but number two, uh, how you can help us with the program. So it is a fully paid seaplane rating uh, right now uh, as the the program stands. And we try, our our goal is to do uh, 12 a year at minimum. And if you own a seaplane school, uh, you can donate a rating to us once a year. And we have several schools that do this. Don Lee, uh, Jones Brothers, other schools, uh, Kenmore Air Harbor has done this, have donated us an annual rating per year. I think even uh, Pete uh, was donating uh, for us as well. Backcountry flying experience. Backcountry flying. There's there's quite a few, and we appreciate all of them. So we want to recognize those, those schools that have participated in the program, and we do uh, give them exposure in the magazine and in the community for doing so because we want to be very thankful for their support. But if you are one of the schools that's listening that may not have participated in the program, we would like to invite you uh, to participate in the program. And you can either uh, contact us here at uh, 
csr at cplanes.org or Terry directly as the chairwoman of the scholarship committee. Uh, Terry, how should they get a hold of you? They can contact me at flyames at gmail.com. That's F-L-Y-A-M-E-S at gmail.com. It's my old email from my C, my multi-engine C. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I they, can, um, they can contact me through Foothill Aviation. There you go. So look Terry up or contact us here at the headquarters if you're interested. I will also challenge you if you're listening. It's the end of the year. It's a great time to spread uh, potentially a good financial year if you had one. Um, if you donate uh, to the scholarship program, uh, it is 100% uh, tax deductible. And uh, you do that through the Seaplane Foundation. Uh, we manage the money and, and the program. And uh, if you want, again, uh, to participate in that, I would welcome and kind of challenge you as a listener to pay it forward and help the community and consider donating uh, to the scholarship program. And uh, talking about paying it forward, uh, Terry, this is kind of an annual ritual of mine and uh, Mary's. Uh, but right now, um, we'll commit to our annual $2,500 donation uh, to the program, and we'll get that taken care of after the program uh, to do our part. Thank you, Steve. And, <laughs> you know, we had quite a few donations when we did the um, the podcast on the scholarship, and a lot of them are my son's good friends. And it's just so touching to see how young people um, are so thoughtful, and uh, it's really appreciated. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great cause. And again, we're making pilots in the process, which is important, and, and it sure seems like it's been greatly appreciated by the recipients. And it is done on um, kind of a, a, a vetting process where we're looking at scholarship applications and really looking for people that have been leaders at a young age, that have been you know, concerned with high achievement and have given back to the community by getting involved in EAA or other aviation activities. If you would like to apply for the scholarship, we welcome you to do that as well. It is uh, a 18 to 25-year-old criteria for the Tyler Orzo Chuck Kimes Memorial Seaplane Scholarship. The Lift Scholarship is a women's-only scholarship, and you can also get to that program um, through uh, Terry, if you contact Terry, she'll get you connected uh, with applying for the Lyft Scholarship. Uh, but the uh, Tyler Orzo Chuck Kimes Scholarship is actually uh, structured at 18 to 25 years old. You need to have a uh, private pilot uh, rating in hand, so you're ready to go use it for your seaplane rating. Um, and you need to be a Seaplane Pilots Association member, which is a small price of entry uh, to receive a, a pretty large benefit in the, in the chance you're selected uh, from the pool. If you're not awarded in any one, any one award cycle, you stay in the pool until you either age out at 25 or you attain the rating in the meantime. So, um, again, we want to spur the interest in the program and both uh, encourage people to apply uh, for the, the scholarship, but also uh, consider uh, donating and supporting the program. And I would just like to add that any of you that are float plane pilots that have your own float plane, 
and you know of a young person that's interested or just got a seaplane rating, if you can take them flying, let them build some time, especially if you're a CFI, let them build some time while you're out flying around. It just means the world to them. And that's the only way they're going to be able to get enough time to be able to start getting into getting into jobs. So um, we need to try to help pay it forward when we're we're in a position to do so. Yeah. All too often we're flying the airplane alone with no one in the right seat. And um, that's something that, again, will be another episode for the future because we really have a strong desire to start a a seaplane pilot mentoring program where we provide those opportunities. That's something on my to-do list and list of uh, aspirations for the association for the very near future. So um, uh, there we have it. I I love discussions about the scholarship. I love all of these discussions. We want to end on a little bit, again, of a positive note. And I think one of the things that, again, people may not realize about California is that it actually hosts one of the oldest and the largest seaplane splashing events on the west coast of the United States. Good old Clear Lake. Good old Clear Lake. We love Clear Lake splashing. It's in September. Yeah, generally the third week of September. Usually uh, the third week, they've switched it up just a little bit because of the Pear Festival. So they've trying to they're trying to um, put it in at the same time that they have their downtown Pear Festival. So it's it turns into it's one of the few places I've seen where the community runs the seaplane splash in. It used to be run by Chuck and uh, Chuck Kimes and Ray Wolf. And they had taken it over the the last few years back in 2010 from, I think Walter ran it for a long time. And then I ran it for several years when I had NorCal. But uh, Melissa with the seat with the Chamber of Commerce up in up in Clear Lake took it over Lakeport. And they have been running it for the probably the last five or six years, and they're just doing a great job with it. They're trying to get funding raised to put in a permanent ramp at their schoolyard. They have a high schoolyard that they have all the float planes uh, come into. And then during the weekend, we get the Sea Scouts who come and watch the airplanes for us on the weekend. So it, it involves the whole community. The, the Some of the clubs up there will come and set up food vending and stuff. And I think that's one of the first places I met you, Steve. When it you is, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a fun event, and we get a lot of airplanes on amphibs, and they do have several docks we can tie into. But, yeah, it's well worth, worth doing. And I think they are planning it this year coming up 2022. Yeah, we will keep everybody posted on that. We literally would show up with our trailer and with strange birds on the road and uh, have all of our seaplane and bush flying paraphernalia. And um, it is amazing because the, the town has been so accommodating, putting in a temporary ramp every year there at the schoolyard, uh, literally doing a parade of seaplanes down Main yeah, Street. Where they have you drive downtown. They, everybody, they'll close the roads and then they have the float planes going through the Main Street. Yeah, I I really don't know of anywhere else I've seen that event and something I'd like to see more of. But literally, uh, we do a parade of seaplanes down Main Street uh, in, through town, uh, which is is just incredible. And and I was telling Terry before we started the show that I literally have postcards of the hotel that host 
the event with seaplanes sitting in front of it on these postcards dating back to the very early 60s. And, of course, there's a very interesting story behind how the, the lake even got its name, which was it was a secondary landing uh, location for the Pan Am Clipper ships when they were flying into San Francisco. And if San Francisco Bay was fogged in, they would ask, is the lake clear? And they would divert uh, to Clear Lake if the lake was clear. So uh, really, really fun and interesting, rich history of seaplanes in California and a fascinating discussion. Terry, I'm I'm so happy to have you join us. I love these discussions. Is there anything that we really haven't touched on that you wanted that you would have liked to have talked on about today? No, I think we're good, Steve. I think we covered the drought, a little bit on the drought, um, glossy water and the scholarship and Clear Lake. So I think we've touched on quite a bit. Well, I sure appreciate you coming uh, on the show today and having this discussion. We always want to make them informative, but also entertaining uh, for the listeners. And I really appreciate all the energy, the passion, the knowledge, the skill that you've been so generous sharing with the seaplane community and with pilots and through the scholarship program. You are an inspiration um, I'll get teary-eyed as I say that because I deeply, deeply value our, our friendship and our relationship, and it's always such a pleasure to fly with you and speak with you and spend time with you. Um, so thank you for a good 20 years, and it's a great present to do this as we go into the holidays. Thank you. Well, thank you. And again, if we can do this monthly, we might end the drought. <laughs> yeah, we have to get that snowpack up across the winter. That's right. That's right. I, I appreciate you having me on, Steve. It's always a pleasure. You do a great job there, and um, it's been fun to watch the seaplane community grow over the time you've been the director there. It's it's uh, it's it's a real pleasure and and fun to watch. Thank you. So we hope you've enjoyed uh, another wonderful, for me, special issue uh, episode of Water Flying. Uh, please share this podcast with your friends. Subscribe to it. Give us your feedback because ultimately the show is your show. It's for you, the Water Flying community. And uh, thank you so much. And until next time, um, blue skies and calm waters. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.